Welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For a couple of years now, we've been sharing the latest market data every week in our weekly video series. With the new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from, from the leaders in the industry. Every week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand. We analyze all the changes in that data and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It's been so hot, so competitive, and now suddenly the landscape is changing. So when people ask me, Mike, can I get the data for my local market? The answer is yes. Visit altosresearch.com for free consultation about how to use the data in your business for your buyers and sellers right now. But without further ado, let me introduce my guest today. Jimmy Mackin. Jimmy is the CEO of Curator, a full service digital marketing company focused on helping listing agents get more listings. In seven years, Curator has grown to over 10 million in annual recurring revenue and has been featured in Forbes, Inc., The Huffington Post, USA Today, all kinds of media. Jimmy in 2019 co-authored Exactly What to Say for Real Estate Agents, a best-selling book designed to help real estate agents with the most common critical and default questions they face. Jimmy is the, the host of the hit podcast, Water Cooler. And really a lot of what we want to talk about today is, is about what to say for real estate agents. Like, what do we say right now as this market is changing? So Jimmy, welcome. Well, first off, Mike, thanks for the warm introduction. Thrilled to be on the podcast. You and I are kindred spirits. You focus on market, the market. I focus on marketing. So it's always fun to have a conversation with you about you know, where the world's going and, and how agents can position themselves from a public perspective to connect with consumers in a meaningful way. So I'm excited to dive into today's, today's topics. That's great. And I really appreciate your the voice you use on social media and stuff about, about you know, here's what we need to think about. Here's how we need to talk about things. Here's how we structure our business. Like it's a real positive forward thinking space. How'd you get, how do you, tell me, let's start with curator and yeah. like in your background and, and like what, you know, let's talk, let's start there and then we'll dive in more. Yeah, well, curator exists because effective marketing is the number one deciding factor on how much market share you're going to have in your local area, especially now where there are so many different places where a consumer can interact with your brand. Agents have struggled not only to think about what should I create, what should I post, but now where do I post it? How often do I post it? And so Curator was really the, the solution, the idea, the inspiration for the business was really meant to be a company that didn't just provide tools and technology, which we do, but rather provide the kind of guiding principles agents need to, to embrace to sort of thrive in any market, regardless of whatever the social media platform of the day is. And so curator clients who, who are, you know, we work with 500 of the top teams that we have the privilege of, of, of leading, what makes them different is their willingness to get out there and try to add value, try to, try to educate the market, try to establish themselves as an expert. And, and that has been 
one of the maybe driving forces behind not only the way we think about marketing, but also how we support our customers. Got it. And, and so, so you, so you work with teams, mm-hmm. yep. big teams and, and the, and you do the digital layer on the marketing on top, but also the principles of, of marketing. Yeah. So like, if you think about, <clears throat> if you think about the consumer journey for a second, I think we, we sort of maybe look at the landscape of digital marketing and real estate as, as category. What I see to be the most common mistake, Mike, is when you think about how agents market their business today, so much of it is built on interrupting the customer, forcing the customer to do something they don't want to do, whether it's pick up a phone call they didn't ask for, respond to an email they never subscribed to, or even fill out a form on a website just to be able to view a listing. And so we've long justified these tactics because they, they work. Meaning if we do it enough times and we annoy enough people, eventually someone will say, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll meet with you. But what's, what's, sort of, what's been the seismic shift in our industry, in the marketing industry for the last three to five years, has been sort of this consumer first revolution, which is now as consumers, we have control over what we see. We get control over who is able to contact us. And we're even starting to get control on what type of ads are able to be served to us. And this has been, there's been legislation on this, you know, whether it's GDPR or some of the laws in Canada, whether it's Apple and the iOS 14 update, or it's just what you're seeing with can spam and all the regulations around phone calls, like where now you see potential spam when you get a number from a number you don't recognize. So agents, when you look at the status quo, Mike, what you're, what you're finding is a lot of agents are getting caught flat-footed because they're realizing in order for me to grow my business, I can't annoy people into doing business with me anymore. I have to come up with another strategy. And so what we have seen to be effective has been agents who, and this is, I think, a lot of why, with all this research, why you guys have been so successful in your space, agents who educate the consumer, build that connection with the consumer, demonstrate they know what they're talking about, those agents that we talk about principles, that's the principle that, that is, is more important than the platform. You know, we kind of jump to the platform, but like, no, there's, there's a fundamental principle, which is if you can demonstrate you're really good at your job and you can showcase your expertise and you can teach the consumer, you build an affinity with the consumer. And that can translate in any platform, like email, content marketing on your website, Twitter, TikTok, you know, the, the platform is, is not relevant as it relates to that basic principle. Got it. So, so, and so then the principle is we are the, the expert and we are the adding value. We're not, we're not leading with the annoying or we're, we're leading with the value. Mm-hmm. And so how does, so then let's, so, so then how do you implement that when you think about when you create a curator, yeah. how, do, how do you bring that to life? Well, it's, it's a, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll share my personal experience from, and this might be helpful and instructive for your audience because you're a content creator and, and so am I. And, and so are the people that we look to in real estate that we follow. There's a common thread amongst the, called the agents who have transcended their market, the ones who have sort of gone global. They are, the, they are creators. There's no one in real estate who, is, who has become a breakout star and whose business is thriving because they ran a good Facebook ad. Almost every agent you can think of, whether it's Brad McCollum and his videos, he's doing touring homes in Calgary, or it's Glenda Baker and her, her TikTok series, or it's Ken Pozak, who's 
featuring his community in Orlando, Florida and highlighting what it's like to live there. These are agents who are content creators first and foremost. And so one of the, one of the keys to becoming an effective content creator and I don't know about you, Mike, but for me, this is my this is what has always helped me kind of balance like doing my job being the CEO of Curator, but also marketing the business is I focus on the inputs, which is where do I get my information from? And, 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 and those inputs really help me think differently about the world, about the market, and certainly about the opportunities ahead. So what I do, and this is this is a tactic that I think everyone here who's listening to this podcast, whether they listen live or in the recording, this is something that you can do. Find the people that you admire the most, all right? So find the people in our industry that you look to and say, this person is really a blue flame thinker, okay? And then, and then ask the question, who do they follow? Because what you'll find behind every great influencer is a, just a, a, an incredible wealth of knowledge for people that they follow, that they consume. And so it's funny because I've, I've, I, I follow you on Twitter, Mike, and I love the stuff you put out there. And guess what I did? You know, when I started really following you maybe a couple of years ago, I'm like, who does Mike follow, right? And it's, it's a lot of economists <laughs> is, is the short, is the short yeah. answer, right? Surprise, TLDR, it's economists is who Mike follows. But it, it's a great way to get introduced to people outside of your like real estate, you know, bubble is like, okay, hey, there's other people out there that can kind of help, help open the world up for you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that that concept of the, the great agents are actually content creators. And it's funny that it's like the old adage that in business, the, at a certain level, we're mm -hmm. all in sales. When you mm -hmm. like, no matter what your role in the company, at a certain level, you're all in sales. Yeah. And really in this world, in this media world that we live in, at a certain level, we're all content creators. Like mm -hmm. we like to, to, a, once you achieve a certain level, like that, that is, that's what we're doing in the world. We're, we're communicating out. Mm -hmm. I love that. The great agents the great teams are, have transcended their market and, and are, are creators. Cool. That's super neat. And, and so, so in this moment, we're mm -hmm. in this crazy, this crazy, we, the market's been super hot. Mm -hmm. and it is changing very quickly mm -hmm. and so you know the content has to change and you're mm -hmm. so your book is exactly what to say for real estate agents mm -hmm. and so you know what do we say yeah it, you know i had the opportunity to co-author this book with two of the great sales minds in our industry and and beyond my partner chris smith and a sales trainer who's an extraordinary sales trainer phil m jones and one of the things I learned this process, because we wrote the book now two and a half years ago or so, maybe a little bit longer, and it's, it's sold hundreds of thousands of copies now, has thousands of five-star reviews on Amazon and on Audible, and it's been sort of a breakout success. And, and one of the things that I learned in this process of writing this book and taking this, on, this project on was how much of sales is not about what you say, but what you ask. And Phil, my co-author, has this great line. Whoever is asking the questions is in control of the conversation. So when you ask the question, Mike, what should people be saying? I think my immediate response is not necessarily what should they be saying, but what should they be asking? And this gives, this gives you maybe the empathy you need to help guide the conversation. So if I was interviewing a seller and if someone's you know, calling up to think about listing the property, questions I might ask about that, about, about that just to kind of maybe get to the bottom of, of where their head's at is I might ask the question, 
Do you think the market's stronger now or do you think it was stronger six months ago? And the reason I might ask that question is to gauge how realistic are they about price? Because you and I both know, I follow your all this research, you know, tweets you put out there, like price reductions are rising, right? Sellers are sort of living in this fantasy world where they maybe believe that when they put their property in the market, they're going to get 25 offers. So agents are having a lot of tough conversations about price reductions and why aren't they getting offers and why isn't people pulling up to my house with a Brinks truck, dumping out money to buy my house because the market has shifted. And when the market has shifted, what we're really saying, and Mike's put out some incredible information about this, it's not just the fact that home values have gone up, but it's the cost of capital that's also increased. So I've seen data on this, Mike, where we're saying the house across the street from me is selling for $1.3 million, okay? Literally across the street from me. They, they bought the house in 2020 for $850,000, okay? I live in Auburn, New Hampshire. This is not the new hotbed for civilization. This is not an area that's growing. And you can look at the research, Mike, it ain't growing at 40% year over year. So, the, so consumers are saying, well, that house has a, a, effectively claiming they've appreciated over you know, whatever, 50% in the last two years. It hasn't, right? And so the conversation, I think, or the conversation that's happening is sellers are, are in fantasy land about their prices and they're kind of in this potential world of hurt. So agents need to sort of be preemptive by asking questions that lead the seller to the conclusion that maybe we shouldn't overprice this home. Maybe we should list it at a reasonable price that will still get the attention and still get the interest and still help the home sell because it still can sell clearly, but overpriced homes aren't selling. And so that, that would be the first thing that comes to mind, my mind, Mike, on the sell side, at least. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The, the, you know, where, the big fear right now is rising interest rates, rising mortgage rates. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, do you think they're going to be higher mm -hmm. or lower in six months? Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. The, I think there's going to be more inventory or less inventory. In yeah. Like those yeah. are, those are really powerful questions to ask. And I, I think what, what you're trying to do there is you're trying to get people to come to the conclusion on their own. So you don't get combative. Meaning if I just, if, if I go into the conversation, this is typically what an agent would do. If an agent, any time an agent is faced with an objection, they immediately get into justification mode. And when they get into justification mode, now we're not having a conversation, we're having an argument or disagreement. So why do you charge 6% might be a question a consumer asked. Now we immediately think that they don't value our service or they're trying to get a discount, but they may just be asking because they don't know the answer. And so a, a response to a question like that might be, well, what do you know about how real estate commission works? And they're going to say, well, I don't know how it works. Like you, you, you get the 6%. They don't know that 3% goes to the buyer. They don't know my broker's you know, collecting 15%. They don't know that I'm investing you know, $700 in advertising and marketing for the home. They just think I'm taking the full pie and I'm sitting there and, and cashing that money in. And so I think many of the conversations and the challenges that we have with real estate uh, with the consumer are based off of our, the narrative or the story that we tell ourselves when someone asks a question. And if we challenge that wisdom, that conventional wisdom, that maybe they're asking the question because they don't know the answer, not because they're trying to be combative or trying to basically force us down a certain path, we can maybe get to where we want to get to or get to where the consumer should get to in a more kind of collaborative way with the consumer. So yeah, I think it's, I think it comes down to agents just being 
being empathetic in this market, asking good questions, helping the consumer get a feel for what's happening, as opposed to saying homes, you know, like just going down the talking track that you and I both know isn't really that effective. Yeah, for sure. So, so we go into asking questions and we're asking about, you know, the, we know that this market is changing and, mm -hmm. and we know that the consumers are scared right now. So if you're buying, you're yeah. worried that you're buying at the peak. Yeah. And yeah. if you're selling, you worry that you missed the peak. Yeah. Sure. sure. <laughs> so, so, so let's talk about that. Like this, like, and, and, you know, we're worried, everybody's worried that the economy is going to blow up and, mm -hmm. you know, global uncertainty. And, and I was just talking with another podcast guest about, about the end of globalization, mm -hmm. meaning like all kinds of assumptions we've had for the last, you know, 30 years about how the world works are, are changing. And, mm -hmm. and so like that, now there's a, like all these fears out there in the world. And so are you saying that like, through the questions, we can help move past the fears? Well, I think, well, I, there's questions can help you uncover what the real fear is, mm -hmm. right? So let's just, let's just start there. Question, asking intelligent questions can help you uncover what, 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 where is the consumer coming from? Where, like, what information do they have available? What are the blind spots they have? But at a certain point, you are going to have to educate them about what's going on. That's the reason they're hiring you is they are expecting you to be an expert. You know, there's, there's a crazy stat. There's a, there's a gentleman by the name, I think his name is Morgan Housel, who wrote the book, The Psychology of Money. It's a fantastic yep. book. People Great book. And in that book, he talks about how 90% of Warren Buffett's wealth has come after he turned the age 65. Yeah. And so when people think about the peak, the reason that's a hard conversation to have is because my time horizon is very different than your time horizon. And so if I am in the business of buying and selling houses quickly, like flipping them for whatever reason, or I have a very short time horizon, then there are very real reasons why you probably shouldn't buy a house right now, right? If you're, if you're in the business of buying a house, putting some cosmetic updates to it and trying to selling it for 30% above the ask price or above the original purchase price, you, you're probably going to experience some serious headwind. We, I saw a report, put out, I think by Riz Media recently, and I might be misquoting this, but it was about sort of the, the slowing down of eye buying and the percentage of eye buying as part of the market. You probably have some of the data on this, Mike. Um, but you're seeing that like people who have this sort of like who are buying houses and then turning around and selling them quickly, they're going to be in a bit of a world of hurt right now if you look at the next sort of you know, 12 to 24 months. But if your time horizon is, let's say, the average, what, what is it, Mike, what is the median for homeownership? Like how long are people? I think we're over 10 years now. Okay. So let's put that let's put that in perspective. And I saw a, a tweet not too long ago where they were doing an analysis of the last 188 financial quarters. And of the last 188 financial quarters, going back to 1975, 168 of them, we saw homes appreciate. And if you take the 2008, 9, 10 out of it, there was only like three or four quarters where home values actually depreciated. And each of those quarters, the home values depreciated less than like you know two percent. So if the median length of ownership is plus 10 plus years, and if his, history is a, at least some indication on where homes are going to go, you could safely say that, yeah, you may be buying at you know, this sort of this moment right now. But if we fast forward, if you, if you own a home like most people, which is seven to 10 years or 11, 12 years, 
it's, it's incredibly unlikely based on the historical information we have available to us that this is going to be a bad investment for two reasons. Even if the home doesn't appreciate at, you know, 10%, 15% annually, you're still going to be paying down the principal balance on that mortgage. And if you make bi-monthly payments, you can drive that down even further. If you get to take a 15-year mortgage, you can drive that even further. So you can build wealth through home ownership in a couple of different ways. It doesn't just have to be through rapid home appreciation over a really short period of time. So when we talk about we talk about asking questions, it really is about understanding. It is about understanding where they're coming from. But at a certain point, like you got to know your shit, right? You got you got to know like like you got to tell a story that helps people understand these ideas so they can make an informed decision. And here's the thing, Mike. <clears throat> Selling isn't about convincing someone to do something. Selling is about providing clarity so they can make an informed decision. And this is where a lot of agents screw it up, which is if you're trying to push people into a decision that's not right for them, they're going to resist it. We just have to give them the information, be as clear as we possibly can, provide the best advice we can, and then it's their decision to make. And that's, that's really when you, when you have a great salesperson, they understand that sort of instinctively. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The the ability to get them to make their own decision yeah. is the powerful place to be. Mm-hmm. The the so what's interesting to me now is is so our messages are changing, our language is changing right now. Yeah. But the questions that we ask are changing. And so the the principle is still the same. How is the actual technology, the digital layer of marketing changing in a world where things are slowing down mm-hmm. notably? How does that change? Yeah, it's what's, what's so amazing about the advance in technology is sort of, you know, the expression of the world is flat. What's so amazing about technology is we no longer have to wait permission. If you're a new agent or you're an agent who's trying to build market share, you don't have to wait permission for like the top agent to retire for you to start to actually build up some of that market share. You're seeing some of these really fast growing teams who, who are quick to adopt the latest technology start to absolutely dominate. And it, it usually goes like this. Somebody comes out doing something and it's different and unique. And I'm sure, like, we'll talk about Glenda Baker as an example. Glenda Baker has a, a fantastic presence on TikTok. She's got you know, uh, millions and millions and millions of views of her videos that she's produced. I'm sure when she put out the first few of those videos on TikTok, I'm sure a bunch of agents in our market said, well, that's stupid, right? Yeah. And I'm sure when she started to get a little bit of momentum, I'm sure a bunch of agents in our market said, well, you know, yeah, Glenda's popular online, but she doesn't sell that much real estate, right? Now they can't say shit because guess what? She's popular and she's successful. And, and the reality is, is that agents who adopt technology early, early on, it's not about necessarily just gaining the, the call it the first mover's advantage, which is now they sort of like are able to capture an outsized amount of attention because they're the only, few of the only agents down there. What, what they actually develop is the skills needed to compete in this digital first world. Meaning if you are good with short form video, well, guess what? Maybe TikTok isn't the platform, but you've got IG Reels, you've got Facebook Reels, you've got YouTube Shorts, you've got other mediums in which you can take those same skills you've been honing on platform A and translate over to platform B, platform C, platform D. So I think when I think about the technology landscape and the digital marketing landscape, 
what's become clear is that your ability to connect with consumers has never been easier. <clears throat> your ability to stand out has never been harder. And so you have got to figure out ways to say, what is the area or my, my superpower that I can lean into? Some of us are great writers and we should absolutely use things like email newsletter and, and writing long form content to communicate our ideas. Some of us are, some of us are fantastic on video and, and we have a personality and we light the camera up and we can communicate in a really clear way. Well, then clearly we should use video as, a, as an opportunity, as a platform, right? Some of us are just better, you know, more in that one-to-one, -one, you know, world where we can just, you know, you meet somebody, you have a built an instant connection. Well, then we should live in the DMs, right? We should, that's where we should operate from a social perspective. So it depends on what your superpower is. And that should be kind of where you focus your attention. But the landscape is changing, Mike. People's attention spans are, I don't think they're getting any shorter. Cause I think there's a lot of misconceptions around that, but the demand for quality is rising, you know, and that's, and that's the really interesting piece here, which is like average gets ignored. And so your ability to be really good and really compelling is essential if you're trying to stand out because it's very crowded out there online. Yeah. And sometimes that crowd that it is makes it hard to, you know, we, I only started doing video work for my, for Altos research two years ago. And, yeah. and I thought for a long time, the video is probably not for me. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm more of a writer and the people who are on video are doing, you know, they there's uh, you know, you watch Tom Ferry and he's awesome on, on video. Yeah. And, and so I resisted for a while because of the crowdedness of it. Mm -hmm. What I observed, of course, is that, you know, once, you know, if you, you do good work and you do it consistently, then all of a sudden, you know, like you, you start to stand out, you start to actually get work done. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation you've had with yourself, which is you look at someone like Tom Ferry, who's an exceptional order, who is a, is a fantastic in camera. Like, well, I'll never be as good as him. Right. And that's like a reason to like, not get started, which is a dumb reason not to get started, right? Clearly, <laughs> clear, clearly, like no one will be as good as Tom Barry. He's fantastic on camera. He's got this, you know, electric personality. He's a great communicator. Okay. But that does not mean that you don't have information that's not worth sharing. And so one of the things that, you know, my, my, one of my employees, Annette Doris, who's just a, a fantastic part, a part of our market team. She's the one who really pushed me into building my Instagram following. I've gotten now close to 12,000 followers on Instagram. And if you guys want to follow me on Instagram, it's at Jimmy Mackin on Instagram. But I started, I had like maybe a thousand or 2000 followers last January. So it's only been about 18 months since I adopted the platform. And so she's like, you got to get out there. You're the CEO of the company. You're the face of the brand. It's really important for you to be on Instagram. And so I resisted it for all the reasons that you suggested, right? I'm like, I don't want to share pictures of my food. I don't want to share pictures of where I'm traveling. Like I'm, I'm like working for a living here at that. Like I'm not, this is not my job to be out there. And what, what, what switched for me and what really helped me kind of overcome that, as I said, Annette, listen, if we're going to do this, I have one simple rule. Our goal is to become the most useful brand to follow on Instagram. So we ain't putting out anything that is going to waste people's time. And so I've, I, I have this idea where I'm not looking to become the most popular, the most funny, the most charismatic, the most interesting. I'm not trying to build envy about my life and who I am and what I do. I am trying to be useful. And, and, and that, in that mission of be the most useful person to follow has allowed me to, to focus my energy and attention on creating content that empowers my audience 
that helps them get better at what they do. So whether it's Twitter, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Instagram, whether it's email marketing, whether it's webinars like this, like my job is I don't, everyone hasn't had time. I don't want to waste their time. So if, they, if they're going to see me in their feed, Mike, it's going to be something that's going to help their business or help them get better at what they're doing. And what's been crazy about it is that the, like, there's a great quote from like LaMelo Ball, which is he says, I'm your favorite player's favorite player. Like I'm the, I'm a lot of people in Instagram who are, who are people that I admire, like I'm their favorite follow because I don't waste their time. I give them ideas that they can then help shit spread to their, to their, to their audience. And it's been incredibly rewarding. So I don't have a hundred thousand people following me on Instagram. I got 12,000, but my impact is far greater than the average person. Cause I focus on that. So my advice to an agent who's listening right now is if you ask yourself the question or start with the question, how do I become the most useful person to follow? Then that helps kind of like it strips away all of the, I, I, you know, I'm not interesting. I'm not funny. I can't dance for shit, right? Like it takes all those objections and then allows you to focus on what you're really good at. And that helps you, helps you build an audience and helps you get an impact on the work you do. That's, that's a, a great, another principle, you know, that, yeah. to, to follow. That's, a, that's terrific. We, it's, it's been really a fun transition cycle for me working on our, our YouTube channel, building that and, and in roughly that, with that principle in mind, you know, mm -hmm. we're just, we're just going to talk about it. And we started, you know, that, the pandemic hits and I said, well, people are going to need to know mm -hmm. as this yeah. market craters, which I assumed was going to happen. And yeah. when it didn't happen, suddenly I get <laughs> yeah. to be in this the fun place is when you get to be contrarian and bullish at the same time. Sure. And, and so we got to like, we, we got to do that. And, and it was a, it has been a really fascinating ride in the next, the last few years. So I got some Instagram work to do, but you yes. know, I'm, but I'm getting there. <laughs> yes. Listen, listen, I, it, it's a, the work you've been putting out there has been awesome. And I know a lot of people who are watching and listening to these podcasts all appreciate the, the, the insight you provide. And I think what's actually interesting is if you go back to the consumer for a moment, one of the things that I've learned being in this industry and working with so many of the top teams across the country is that a really good real estate agent is obsessed over the customer experience, meaning they, are, they really try to understand how to make things easier for them. And if you look at some of the disruptors in our space, you know, I tweeted this recently. I said, I said, you shouldn't worry about the disruptors because they couldn't last you know, one day doing the job of an average real estate agent. They have no respect for the industry. They have no respect for the agents. They have no respect for the work they do. They think that you're all lazy, overpaid, entitled idiots that are, are going to be replaced by a button on a website. That is, their, that, is, that is how they actually feel. Now, they may say other things to you publicly because they need you for the time being, but it's kind of like Travis Kalkin with, with Uber, where he's like, the problem with Uber is the person sitting in the front seat. So a lot of the disruptors feel that agents are simply a necessary evil needed on the path to basically truly disrupting this industry. But here's the thing that, that they don't understand, they don't appreciate, is that buying and selling a house is an incredibly emotional decision. And, and my mother, my father, who lived on the street from here, selling a house with a curator client, the same agent that I use, Lisa Johnson, is a rock star, shout out to Lisa. And... The amount of stress they have around the sale of the property, pricing, preparing it, right? My, my mother is a clean freak. She spent 12 hours cleaning her house for the agent to come over, to show it to the agent, right? And, and like, this is, 
if this is part of the experience that people don't or people in the outside of the industry don't appreciate is that if you're not sitting across the kitchen kitchen table with a consumer it's hard for you to empathize what it's really like to make the decisions. So they think it's about price. They think it's about convenience. They think it's about ease of use. Commission. They think it's about commission. Like it's, it's really not about that. And when, you know, it, those are, those are sort of the check boxes. You got to be in the range, but it, it's really about feeling a sense of confidence in the person you're working with. And the reason I share all of this is because agents do a terrible job at marketing their actual value proposition. And, and that's and so if there's one lesson that everyone takes away from today's podcast is to understand what your value proposition really is. Because it isn't that you're going to help someone see a bunch of properties online. It isn't going to be that you're going to put a sign in the yard and help sell their house. What you're really selling in real estate, especially on the sales side, is you're, you're selling confidence. You're selling trust. You're selling safety and an experience that protects the consumer, sets them up for success. So whether that's pricing the property, marketing the property, negotiating the property, these stories that, that, that happen every day in your life, if we can start thinking about communicating, sharing those stories, then we will, we will get so much closer to clearly articulating how we add value in this, you know, in this really important part of people's lives. But what you see online, Mike, is you see people say, we make selling easy, right? We make buying easy right? We charge 1% commission. Like this is not what consumers care about. <laughs> like that is, that is so far from why they're hiring their agent. You know how many times my mom has brought up commission when we talk to talk about selling a house? Zero. <laughs> like it literally zero. Yeah. You know how many times, like, do you know how many times she talked about, like, oh, I really wish this was, was, this was easier. Zero. Like, she's like, I, I just, I'm, I'm hoping I can get a good price for my property. I, I want this to be like a smooth transaction. I don't want to have to do like a ton of open houses. Like I'm really nervous about this. Like this is the real work of selling real estate and this is what needs to be marketed. And so I think that's, I think it's an important lesson for your audience here is to understand that part of being a great marketer in today's world is clearly demonstrating how you add value in going beyond the platitudes, right? Going beyond the, now's a great time to sell. Now's a great time to buy. Like going beyond that stuff and getting to the heart of it that's where you build that human to human connection that can scale in the digital world. Yeah, I, I, I've been watching Silicon Valley technology disruptors in real estate for 25 years. And it's been it's always fascinating to me because the the tech guys go into it thinking, well, how hard can it be? Six mm percent -hmm. is too much. Mm -hmm. like, and so starting Zip Realty 25 years ago, they were like, hey, we're going to do it online and it's going to be a discount. And, you know, Redfin started whatever, yeah. 18 years ago. And, hey, it's going to be online and we're going to do it at a discount. And, 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 and what they all rapidly realized is how much of the market mm -hmm. wants full service, full price. Yeah. Like you think that, that you want a discount, but you actually don't. You actually want to, <laughs> you want to pay people to do this work for you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's such a it's such a really important point because I think it's something that everyone gets hung up on right now, and I think I think what you're going to see as the market transitions is you're going to see a lot of listing agents, right, who have been controlling the market, right, are now going to have to work three times as hard for the same amount of money. Yeah, because their listings are going to sit in the market for more than seven days, 
And all of a sudden, you know, it's gonna, it, you ask any season agent, Mike, what is the toughest conversation to have? And they're going to say, calling a seller who has no offers on their property and the home's been on the market for 30 plus days and you don't have a plan B. And plan A is do the price reduction. They want to, they want, they won't do that. Right. And so there's no like plan B. And so what happens is what we have to appreciate is if you think about the sort of economics of our business is that we can only handle a small real estate team can only handle service a certain amount of, of clients at any given time. So if that, if the average time to service that client doubles or triples, it's going to apply a tremendous amount of downward pressure on the volume that you can handle comfortably and as well and service at a high level. And so what agents are going to have a challenges with now that we should talk about, Mike, is how do they avoid taking on listings that are overpriced? Because the cost of doing that is actually now you're going to rob yourself the ability of servicing clients who actually will sell their house for a reasonable price within a short amount of time. And then what agents can do to kind of still demonstrate or add value once the home's been on the market for seven or 14 or 21 or 30, 31 days. Like these are some of the real conversations that people are going to have. This is why I said, even 18 months ago, I said, you know, buyer agents are going to remember how you're treating them right now. So like keep, the, like if you're a listing agent, keep in mind, like buyers agents have, they have a long memory, right? It's like, it's the old, like, was it, it's a Margaret Thatcher quote. Like, that's like, you know, our reach is long and our memory is long. I think it is like our reach is wide. Our memory is long. Like eight buyer agents remember what the last 18, 24 months have been like. And like their, their day is now coming. So they're all really looking forward to that. That's fascinating. Yeah. You know, the, how do I take on, how do I avoid taking on overpriced listings mm -hmm. and how do I have that price reduction conversation mm -hmm. are super powerful ones. And we talk about it with the data, you know, and setting that up in the listing presentation in the advance. And it's like yeah. the way we like is, is, you know, you have your Altos report in front of you and you say, are you a big geek or a little geek? Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you're a big geek, I, I've got all the data for you and you can dive in and you can, but if you're a little geek, mm -hmm. I'm going to put this report in your inbox every Monday. And I just want you to look at one number mm -hmm. and this number and ours is the market action index. And that thing is falling while we have mm -hmm. your house listed. That's mm -hmm. the market telling us that demand is weakening, that your supply competition is increasing. And so if that thing falls far enough, that's the market telling us that we may need to get in front of it. And then mm -hmm. now the house is listed and mm -hmm. then the, the client is now looking at that report every Monday and then they yeah. pick up the phone. And they go, Jimmy, this number you told me to watch is falling. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to do a price reduction. Like they mm -hmm. initiate the conversation because the market is telling them, and you've set that up as the expert in the initial conversation in front of them. Yeah. It's a, it's well, you, one of the best ways to overcome an objection is to actually like assume it's going to happen and be able to kind of get ahead of it. I think it's also you know, it's, I, I love that line. You're big geek or little geek. I think what's really interesting when you're thinking about working with a client who has a price in mind, it is, it is important to set sort of rules of engagement in advance, which is to say that, so let's say you have a listing that you know is worth 1.1 million. The seller is saying, I want to sell this house for $1.2 million. You know, it's not going to sell. And there's a hundred thousand dollar difference. Now, you're in business and rule number one in business is don't go broke. So I don't blame any agent 
who takes on that listing because they're telling themselves that, hey, I, eventually, if I can just show that I'm adding value, they'll trust me and then we'll get to the price that's going to actually sell this house. What you can do to avoid all the stress and anxiety and fear and frustration is set the rules of engagement up front, which is say, okay, Mr. Mr. Seller, the market is rapidly changing. So no matter what price we put out there today, whether it's your price or my price, at the end of the day, the market's going to tell us if we're right or wrong. And so my job is to get you the most amount of money for the home, period. Here's how we're going to do that. We're going to market your home through A, through B, through C. I'm going to call these people and these people. And this is like, this is the process. But if the home doesn't sell or we get 12 offers or 12 showings and 15 showings and we get zero offers, that tells us one thing and one thing only. The home is, is overpriced and we have to adjust it to basically be at, at the market level. If that happens, are you comfortable moving it down to that price, right? So it's almost like if we do A, B, C, and then we don't get this result, are you comfortable then doing this? And so you get that upfront commitment from the seller that, hey, I'm going to go all out promoting this property. I'm going to pull, pull out every trick in the book. I'm going to get drone videos. I'm going to do you know, beautiful photography. I'm going to host a, a broker caravan. I'm going to do an open house. I'm going to spend 500 bucks on a Facebook ad. This listing will be seen by every single buyer who's thinking about buying a house in our market. But if we don't get the results we're looking for, then would you be willing to come down? And that now, when that eventually happens, you can now have the ammunition, Mike, to turn the corner and say, okay, hey, this is where we're at in the process. We got to bring it down. And now you don't get in the conversation, well, yeah, I'll do a price reduction, but I'll reduce it by $5,000. Right? Okay. Well, like, like, what do you think a seller is going to say when they see a $1.2 million property drop by $5,000 or buyer? What are they going to say? I'm going to drop by $5,000, right? Like, kidding me? Like, do people think I'm a moron? Like, that's, like they're gonna, that's going to be the reaction. So I think a lot of the stress and anxiety around these conversations can be, can be avoided when you have this kind of social contract with the seller. And then by the way, do your best to sell the house for their price, but also realize like, you know, you got to have a, you got to have a clear plan of action if, and when you don't hit that number. Right. If the market continues to cool while we have your house on the market, we may yeah. have to change. And I, I think, I think there is something to be said about going back to Alta Sweetshirts for a second here. I think there is something to be said about looking at the data in a way where what is the, you know, how does price reductions impact days on market? What like in terms of like the percentage of price reduction, how does that impact days on market? Is there a, and maybe you could speak this, Mike, is there a danger zone where like you see, you see homes like homes delist, right? After a certain amount of price reductions, like, is there, is there a period where like, Hey, we're like, like what happens if we put the property out there? And we do three or four price reductions because the home is overpriced. Like, you know, what happens then? Like, is there a danger zone they can come into where all of a sudden, like, you know, the, like they could have actually got more for their property if they priced it appropriately, as opposed to like trying to reduce down from, you know, uh, their, their fantasy number, if you will. Yeah. And, and, you know, three or four price reductions is actually pretty rare. Like it's, mm -hmm. it, you, you have to miss a mark by a long way, or sometimes it's in the weird properties or the, like the high end properties, the multi-million dollar things that, that, uh, you know, where it's really hard to like, what is this house actually worth? You know, there's yeah. very few comps in that way, but, but you can see things in that light. It's actually relative. We started a long time ago. We started tracking percent of homes that get relisted. 
They get mm. on the market, get pulled off, they get, and they get put on back on. And we started tracking it because when the bubble burst in places like San Jose, this is the you know 2008. Now the bubble's bursting. the The bottom has fallen out of subprime, and if homes that prior to that, and this is where we are now, prior to that, homes that are on the market for 30 days, mm-hmm. that is something is wrong with that home. Mm-hmm. And so people are even afraid to go look at it. And so what they started doing was 30 days, boom, pull it off the market, relist it, reset the days on market, get it pushed out and hey, new listing, all the things. And, and you know, you start seeing like, man, I get this new listing alert email and mm-hmm. there's 40% of these I've seen before. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and, and so we started tracking the realist percent. Now, normally the percent of homes that get relisted is it's a one, 2%, I think it's a couple percent, but then when it started, when the market starts cooling, contracts start falling through those mm-hmm. kinds of things happen. You start, you start seeing that listing, that relisting yeah. percentage climb. And so that's another way for agents to communicate with their sellers. Yeah. Like we're watching list relist climb and you know why they, why they're relisting because they were not priced right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so you can really hit that home in that, with that stat. Well, what's, what's, you know, think about the world that we live in today, Mike, where everybody wants to self-serve until they're ready to make a decision. So if you ask, if you ask a, if you ask a, a top listing agent, Hey, when do sellers reach out to you when they, when they're, when, when, when are they, when's the first point of contact? When does a seller typically reach out to you? The answer is, well, when they're ready to sell. And like, so, so the, so the, the, the thought is like, okay, well, it's, you can't convince someone to sell their house by your marketing, but what you can convince them to do is call you when they've made the decision. And so what I would be doing if I was an agent and hearing what you just said is I would put out a video explaining how I price properties to sell. So what, what I might say is, you know, an average agent might take on a listing at any price point because they're desperate to get, you know, that home and any, you know, a listing is beneficial in the sense that it helps them maybe get some buyers. So your listing, even if it doesn't sell, they can generate business off of that listing, right? That's why an agent might take on a listing that's overpriced. So they're either going to leverage your listing to generate more business or they're desperate. So what I want to do in today's video is I want to walk you through how we price properties to sell for the maximum amount of money. So you don't end up with having to do multiple price reductions. So you don't have to end up with being on the market for 30, 60, 90 days and have all that uncertainty and stress. So you don't end up having to basically uh, take the property off the market and then wait a little while and relist it. So here's how we start. And then walk through the X's and O's of how you actually price property. Now imagine if a seller watches that video before they pick up the phone and call you. See how much more likely it is that they're going to actually be receptive to hearing what your price is versus their price. You're the expert, but the problem is they think they're the expert. And the reason they think they're the expert is because you haven't demonstrated that you're the expert. And so the way you do that is making that information readily available so people can self-serve, so they can actually consume it on their own time. So when I hear stories like what you're talking about, Mike, the thing that I think is important is because sellers don't understand the risk or cost of overpricing, they think it is, I can just get out there, put the pro- I can just choose the number and see if, see if someone wants it. They don't understand the cost. So there's no pain in, like initially, they don't understand the pain and the stress and the anxiety and the fear and the potential cost it actually has in selling the home for the right price. They don't understand that. So 
we can't blame them for living in fantasy land and listing this dude's property for $1.3 million. I don't blame him, right? Because he doesn't know any better. And so I think this is an opportunity. We talk about marketing, going back to marketing here. This is an opportunity where you have to kind of pull back the curtain and share a little bit of your secret sauce without any fear whatsoever that your competition is going to see it and steal your ideas. Like that is the, that is the least of your problems, you know, growing your real estate business. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, as it goes back to our initial part of the conversation where, where the, the agents that, that have transcended are, are creators. And that's an excellent example of what we're creating, right? It's, yeah. it's not about, I'm not pitching you on anything. Mm-hmm. I'm giving you, I'm giving you some, some free expertise and yeah. I'm giving it out to the world. Other agents can look at it if they want to, but, but I'm creating that for the world. And that's, that's very, very powerful. I love that. Look, we're getting actually really close to the end of, of our hour, but I got a, cu- a couple of things I'm interested, other things I'm interested in. You've built quite a business mm-hmm. and, and I'm interested in your approach as an entrepreneur. And also what are you looking at in, you know, we're, we're in a place and I don't know if you saw today, but both Compass and Redfin announced layoffs today and yeah. well, you know, the, the recording will go out in a couple of weeks, but like, yeah. how do you think about your business in this environment? You know, when COVID hit, we were experiencing revenue declines of 10% week over week, right? In the first few weeks of COVID. And so one of the things that after you experience the initial shell shock, right? Of, okay, this is, this is, this is something that none of us could have ever pre- 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 predicted, obviously, or, and we're just reacting to what's in the moment. One of the important lessons I had that I that stuck with me through that early stages of COVID and the pandemic as a business owner was how important it is to play offense and defense. And what I mean by that is there are businesses today who are laying people off, and those businesses are largely businesses who lose money. They operate at a loss, whether it's Redfin or Compass or Uber or, or, or you name it, insert whatever fast growth. VC back tech company you can think of, you know, open door is certainly going to be probably coming close to that list if they actually if they haven't already gone through a round of layoffs, I'm not mistaken. And I think they make a little bit of money as of late. Do you shouldn't mistake that with these companies are now becoming conservative. The reality is many of them just overhired or they hired way ahead of growth. So I I I personally don't read a whole lot into the the headlines of companies doing layoffs, but there is an important lesson here which is businesses who can figure out ways to make a profit can thrive in any market. And so much of what we have to do as an org- as a business is we have to lead with revenue and we have to think about ways to be efficient with how we generate money. We cannot operate, you can't cost cut your way into growing a thriving business. At a certain point, you've got to play offense. And so people at Curator know this because I say this ad nauseum is that when you innovate, you grow and when you don't, you don't. And so when I look back at our history of Curator, being at this now for almost 10 years, every juncture that we have had where we experienced great growth has been on the back of innovation. Some new innovative product, some new innovative service, some new, new, new innovative offering. And so part of what I want the, the agents who are listening today to think about is this is an opportunity for you to step on the gas, for you to be aggressive while others are, are conservative. Now, this is where... It, it, you, you have to fight all, it's like becoming a good investor, Mike. You have to fight all of your natural instincts, right? You have to fight the, the herd mentality. But the thing that I, I, I remind my team of, I said, I said, listen, like we're not gonna go out of business 
because we made some bad bets. We are much more likely to experience pain and challenges because we are afraid to make decisions and afraid to sort of like put, you know, actually get out there and try to do things. Like this is where we have an opportunity to really, you know, aim higher and, and try to try to actually create some game changing and some innovative ideas that actually help our customers and their businesses. So I think my message to those of to my, my overall my overall outlook is the old Warren Buffett to quote him twice in one interview, but it's like, you know, be, is it be greedy when others are conservative and be conservative when others are greedy? Like, you know, I'm paraphrasing there. Like that is like my mindset right now is the market is changing. People are retreating. Every CFO and every company is cutting costs and you shouldn't invest in this or we got to cut back from that. Like I'm saying, Hey, listen, we got to make a profit because we've always made a profit, but we are reinvesting every dollar we have and new ways to add value to our customers because that is where the growth is going to come from. So if I'm an agent listening to this right now, I'm going to, you got to play offense and defense at the same time. You got to cut your costs, your waste. You got to get rid of people who aren't adding value. You got to make sure that you're being as lean as possible, but you are making forward-facing investments in your business to help establish you in the future and to continue to grow. If you're unwilling to do that, then you're just sort of, you're the white pages. You're sort of, you're dying a slow death, right? By a thousand cuts. And, and that is not a business that I'm interested in being a part of or, or supporting or even running for that matter. So yeah, I think it's my, my attitude and my posture is, and I should, give, I should give a disclaimer, I'm naturally like this, but like my posture is ultra aggressive. Like this is like, I'm ultra aggressive while not being wasteful. I think it's the way to, the way to describe it. Be lean, be scrappy, but like be aggressive. Like be, step, like there's a great quote by James Dyson. He goes, when you start to feel tired, that's when you accelerate because that's when you win. And so for a lot of agents the last few years, man, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a race, but like, this is when you got to get your mind right, get your head right. Like, let's go, because this is going to be an opportunity for people to lead from the front and, and you have an opportunity, everyone who's listening, be that person. So that's my mindset going into the, the next six to 12 months, Mike. Awesome. That's a terrific place to leave it. Jimmy, I appreciate you very much. Thank you for being on the podcast today. I love your wisdom. I took a bunch of notes. It's super, super great. Where should people find you and Curator? Yeah, so the best place to stay connected with me is on Instagram at Jimmy Mackin, J-I-M-M-Y-M-A-C-K-I-N. I got the same handle on Twitter and uh, best place to stay connected with me is either of those platforms. And you can follow Curator as well as, as myself on those platforms, Mike. Terrific. So Jimmy Mackin at Instagram and Twitter. I don't follow, I do, I do follow you on, on, on Twitter. So I'll have to go check, catch out your, your, uh, see if I can be inspired by your Instagram work. That's it. Like, follow, subscribe. That's, that, that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. All right, everybody. This is the Top of Mind Podcast. I'm Mike Simonson. Join us at Altos Research. If you're listening to this and you realize that you need to get data into your hands and your customers today, go to altosresearch.com and join us because we can make that happen right now. You can talk about your local market and you can help prepare your buyers and sellers for what's coming right now. All right, more, another, another top of mind next week. Jimmy Mackin, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.